Hi, my name is Sam Sheen, and welcome to our podcast, Captivated Audience. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and professional colleague, Marilyn Berg. This is part two of our discussion with George Volishin. We pick up where we last left off when Marie began asking George about the interesting findings about sanctions described in the Clifford Chance report related to Swedbank. Coming back to what the report actually said, they talked about the deficiencies when it came down to system support and specifically within sanctions that the Baltic entities, the daughter banks, as they are referenced to, did not have the same support system as perhaps the mother bank, of course, of Swedbank based out of Stockholm or Sweden. George, in your opinion, is it vastly different between the different subsidiaries or different entities within a group to have different technology? Well, I think in this particular example, what is important to bear in mind is that the bank that was involved in these transactions in the Baltics was acquired by Swedbank. So it was not uh, their own unit that was created at a certain point in time. It was acquired with its own legacy infrastructure. And as we know, um, the example of many other different banks across the world, legacy infrastructure is very hard to dismantle and to upgrade. So I think there was just probably a sense of inertia that prevented people from considering this issue seriously, which dragged on for a number of years. And the banks operated just using their own systems. They were not entirely in line with the parent system. Again, for sanctions, I think it's quite easy because sanctions can be screened against sanctions lists, which are officially issued by certain governments. It's much more difficult when you have to deal with PEPs because you have to compile your own lists across the group and you have to share them. And they may not be the same across different branches. Transition monitoring is also an area where there can be huge discrepancies. Because I think when I read information about people based in Iran or Cuba, even, even for travel, that send money or make operations with their money, it's a red flag, very big red flag. I think people should have been alerted immediately to that. But I suppose what happened is that there was no, uh, at least at the time, no way to know that in real time. There were, well, very small amounts. But you know, for sanctions, there is no limit. You can process a dollar and be liable for lots of money. As I think it's a legacy issue, which is very, very common when you acquire banks uh, in different countries. Do you remember last time, Marie, we talked about um, the regulators' comments where they were saying your transaction monitoring should be set up so that the KYC you collect about your customers, the risk profile you come to understand, should be aligned to that transaction monitoring you're doing. So we looked at one customer in, under our KYC, which was HRNR1. And George, there's some really interesting stuff going on with this customer. In the podcast, we talked about wallet codes, uh, shiftings, uh, rotating beneficial owners. Do you see anything from a sanction risk or more generally that could have potentially been going on with that customer? Yeah, definitely. It's, um, it's a collection of red flags. These are all classic examples of how you can conceal any links to PEPs, UBOs, who are uh, oligarchs, who are maybe under sanctions in some particular countries. So it's, it's a way to create layers of ownership, layers of management, to create a circles of transactions where money flows uh, back and forth between different companies without any economic purpose. I was not surprised by this part in the report. I think it's it's very, very common technique, which can be found in practically in any case like that, where you have a number of things that are totally legal. Let's say just shifting money from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but to try to capture tax benefits or to try to just plug holes within a big industrial group where, where cash is required. But also it could be about tax evasion. It could be about money laundering. It could be about sanctions evasion. 
So it could be both. The problem is that it's quite hard to separate what is legal from what is illegal. That's the main problem because there must have been some a very large chunk of legal business, uh, of course, but some of that was clearly suspicious and should have been flagged and investigated. Excellent point of view there, George, because what you're coming back to is if your system detects something that might be an irregularity or something that is, doesn't just fit the, the customer profile, then of course you need to start adding, adding some human thoughts to that and some human eyes and detect and investigate it further. Could I ask you what's hot in the sanctions world at the moment? Yes, so sanctions is clearly a very fast-moving area of compliance. We have lots of change, and it's uh, very much politics-driven, even not policy, but politics-driven. Uh, so one of the, I think, most challenging areas of sanction compliance is secondary sanctions. It's something that was not necessarily on the radar immediately under the eyes of compliance officers for a long time. But with the U.S. becoming more aggressive in its enforcement of sanctions, especially in the case of Russia, was one thing that I want to point out is that with CATSA of 2017, so the new law, which is currently the framework for Russia sanctions, has incorporated all the different statutes that were issued before. You have a situation where there are no secondary sanctions as such. If you screen Russian targets against these sanctions, they're not officially mentioned at the website of UFAC, but the law has a reference to them, which means that when you're screening your counterparties in Russia, you need to bear in mind the fact that the U.S. government has lots of latitude in terms of interpreting what is allowable from the point of view of a foreign person, so if a non-U.S. person. You have this term significant transaction. If you are a bank and you're working with the son or the nephew of a Russian oligarch who is buying property for you, who is investing money, he has his money managed by you, you need to be aware of the fact that if this Russian oligarch is an SDN and you're managing money on behalf of his family, even if his son, per se, is a businessman in his own right, you must be aware that there may be a problem with this relationship further on. And we had two cases in UK and Finnish courts recently, one involving a Russian SDN, a Russian oligarch who was trying to recover interest uh, on a loan from a UK bank of Cypriot origin. The bank argued before the High Court of England and Wales that if it made the payment to this Russian oligarch, it would be in breach of US secondary sanctions. As I say, kind of unofficial, because they are just in cuts, so they're not in anywhere else, and they're not a hard and fast rule. It's just a way for the US government to interpret this provision as it wants. And so the UK court argued that it was a risk, because if this bank made the payment, it could lose its access to the US financial system, be denied access to US correspondent banks, uh, not be able to have any accounts in the US, etc. And there was another case as well, wasn't there, um, again, involving someone from Finland? Another case is when a Russian SDN, again in Finland, and by the way, this person is a Finnish citizen, so he's a US citizen. He tried to compel uh, a number of banks in the Nordics to make payments on his behalf for his businesses in, in Europe. And he was denied this possibility because he's an SDN, and these banks feared uh, that they would be under sanctions in the US for doing so. Okay, so in relation to the secondary sanctions powers, are you basically saying that even under the sectoral sanctions, although not expressly written, they can still apply their powers of extraterritoriality? We have here, I think, the biggest and brightest manifestation of extraterritoriality that we've ever known, because we have a situation where not only secondary sanctions, so it's foreign person, being kind of denied a possibility to do business with a, a Russian person by the US government, but it's also something that's very unclear and vaguely formulated so that you never know for sure if uh, what you're doing will be interpreted in your interest or against you. 
And it could also lead to de-risking when companies will be reluctant to do any significant business because they will think that if at any point we have to deal with a Russian SDN or a Russian SSI under sexual sanctions, maybe for some reason, sort of violation of these sanctions. So that's the thing, the challenge. Uh, the sanctions really work this way. Uh, I think it's a very effective tool because the US uh, has shown the world it has the willingness to go against these uh, Russian interests. And I think it's, it's, it's a very hot topic today. It's really full of many complexities. Operational, legal, how you interpret these laws, uh, how you keep track of money flows, how you defend yourself, what kind of arguments you bring to the table. It's a very complex area. I agree. And thank you so much, George. Always a pleasure hearing you speak on, on these topics, definitely giving us a little bit of a, a background to it as well. George, always a pleasure. And it was great to chat with you today. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. If you'd like to like George and come take part in one of our podcasts, or even if you've got a great idea or suggestion on a topic we should cover, feel free to reach out to us on the podcast website, captivatedaudience.eu, or feel free to drop us a line directly on LinkedIn. Until the next time, have a great day and stay safe. There'll be some change.